Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain-related innovation. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Law of Code podcast. I'm excited to share the inaugural edition of the Dow Research Monthly series. The goal of this podcast is to help DAOs and their members understand the potential legal risks that accompany their membership, voting, and contribution to DAOs. This podcast will be a bit different than usual. I will be hosting along with Kyle Smith. I'm Kyle, and I'm a core contributor at LexDAO. I'm a legal engineer at LexDAO, and we work with DAOs, early stage DAOs especially, as well as larger organizations that are transitioning into being DAOs. Our goal with this series is to provide DAO members, DAO participants, governance token holders, sub-DAO members, and anyone involved in the DAO space with guidance and an overview of legal topics such as multi-sig liability, member liabilities, taxes, and treasury, and, and everything from a legal side that they should be considering. Nothing will be legal advice, but we will take a deep dive into the case law that we're seeing across the world. We'll talk a bit about the papers that have been written and the main takeaways from them. And we'll also go back and forth, particularly helpful because we have Kyle to talk about the legal engineering that is possible today. Today's episode covers DAO member liability which means the legal implications that DAO token holders may have, as outlined by the various legal interpretations we've seen through government actions, legal scholarship, and creative lawyering. We'd like to quickly thank the members of the research team, Kyler Wandler, Evan Santos, and Soraya Dewar for their excellent work preparing this episode. The DAO Research Monthly series is sponsored by the DAO Research Collective, a non-for-profit that accelerates DAO functionality by funding and open-sourcing DAO research, aggregating and curating DAO research for the community, and facilitating interactions between academics and operators. The series is also sponsored by Lobby3, a Web3 community designed to give the people a stronger voice in Washington, D.C., so we can build a more prosperous economic future together. Also brought to you by TallyDAO, a platform for on-chain decentralized organizations. Their app helps DAO members start DAOs, delegate their votes, and set up their profile. It also helps manage the proposal lifecycle, creating proposals, voting on them, and executing them if they pass. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about what exactly is member liability why is member liability so important when designing a DAO? Special considerations about multi-sig member liability. And we'll be going over some works published. Case law in North America, European case law, South Central American case law, Asian case law, and Australian. We've got the world covered. And we'll be diving into specifics relating to Uki DAO. We'll talk in-depth about what that case could mean, has meant to the DAO space. And we'll also really explore everything that members of DAOs need to know when it comes to their potential legal risk when participating in a DAO. We'll start at the beginning. What do we mean when we say member liability? Member refers to participation in the DAO, such as by holding a token, using a token to vote, or providing services to the DAO. Liability refers to being legally responsible for something, usually for damages or a loss. It can refer to both criminal and civil liability. In a civil case, for example, 
a person or company may be found liable for damages caused by their negligence, while in a criminal case, an individual may be liable for committing a crime. When discussing member liability in this context, we refer to the legal responsibility that individual members of an entity have for the debts, obligations, and actions of that entity. This can include personal liability for any lawsuits or debts incurred by the entity, as well as obligations outlined in the entity's operating agreement or articles of incorporation, but excludes the liability on the company itself, and that's personal liability. There's a concept in corporate law called the corporate veil, which refers to the legal concept that separates the identity of a corporation from its individual shareholders or members. So what this does is shield the personal assets of the shareholder from the liabilities and debts and typically the actions of the corporation. In the case of a corporation, the shareholders only liable for the assets that they have invested. There are some cases of piercing the corporate veil, which could lead to potential liability. But these are important concepts to cover because the whole idea of a corporation and limited liability is to protect the individual participants. And that's where concepts like legal wrappers have gained popularity in the DAO space. But what is a DAO in the first place? An idealized DAO is when membership is inherently decentralized. And in these DAOs, they're completely governed by the members on consensus decision-making. That means labor is decentralized, control is decentralized, and there is autonomy of the chain transaction layer. All of this is executed in widely varying degrees and subjective degrees of the theoretical limitations according to purpose, ethos, and organizational design of the DAOs. This can create a vicious sea of legal ambiguity. It becomes very difficult to ascertain who's responsible for what actions and consequences within a DAO. Because DAOs operate decentralized and as of now in a very largely unregulated environment, with some exceptions such as SEC and CFTC, vying for regulatory control within the United States, which so far has been regulation by enforcement. So it's difficult to determine the legal status and liability of DAO members. It's important to note in common law precedent, statutory and regulatory guidance regarding DAOs is still evolving and not fully defined yet. The legal status of member liability may vary widely depending on the jurisdiction. Some states, Wyoming, Tennessee, Vermont do have DAO LLC laws on the books. And so why is member liability an important factor when conducting organizational design of a DAO or thinking about how your participation in the DAO could affect you from a legal perspective? There are many important legal and financial implications for DAO members when it comes to liability particularly if a DAO is determined to be operating as an illegal enterprise or engaging in activities that could be offside the regulatory purview or could require registration and some other permission from a regulatory body. The members of the DAO may be held liable. While it's too soon to say for certain, there is always that risk. Also, if a DAO is hacked or suffers a loss due to a lack of proper security measures, the members may also be held liable for any resulting damages. It's important for DAO devs and members to be aware of these potential liabilities that they may face and take appropriate steps to mitigate those risks. These steps may include creating legal wrappers, implementing robust security measures, communicating the potential risks to members, and ensuring compliance with any relevant laws and regulations. Builders, or the developers of DAOs, face a difficult task of progressively decentralizing the governance, treasury, and community of a DAO after they build the initial protocol. The degree to which a DAO is decentralized after the initially centralized development will have a great impact on the amount of liability the developers are likely have to handle. When a DAO is mostly decentralized and without a legal wrapper, it's possible developers could assume a large percentage of all the liability of the DAO 
in legal situations where damages might arise. From a builder's perspective, it's also important to think about limiting the DAO's purpose, the assets it can own and operate, and other considerations that automatically limit the liability of the DAO because it's not engaging in certain areas that would bring on more liability. So we've said the phrase legal wrapper a few times, and what does a legal wrapper mean? A legal wrapper is an entity recognized by law as a valid organization, whether an LLC, association, etc. Legal wrappers can create that corporate veal that we mentioned before. You can therefore infer that to mitigate liability, devs should attempt to shield themselves or at least think about how they will shield themselves and separate or indemnify their persons from the DAO itself by adopting legal wrappers. And that's something we've seen much discourse around. Stephen Pally has a great point in his article for Coindesk from March 20th, 2016, titled How to Sue a Decentralized Autonomous Organization. He highlights this important concern for DAOs and the reason why legal rappers have gained such popularity. Quote, if you don't formalize a legal structure for a human-created entity, courts will impose one for you. If courts are able to impose whatever structure they deem appropriate, this could lead to personal liability for DAO members for the activities of that DAO. And this is the reason why legal rappers were created. Here's Jason Gottlieb, a partner at Morrison Cohen LLP, on what DAO member liability should be. It depends. Every lawyer's favorite two words. So first you have to talk about what any particular DAO is, right? As we all know, you know, every single organization in the world is more or less decentralized, it's more or less autonomous, and it's more or less organized. So just calling something a DAO doesn't particularly actually mean that it's a decentralized autonomous organization. There are plenty of dinos out there, DAO in name only. So if you have a true DAO, something that is is really widely dispersed, where governance is dispersed, control is dispersed, it can be very much ground up, it seems wildly implausible to me that you would stick anyone who votes on the DAO, much less anyone who holds a governance token with liability over the entirety of the DAO. That just seems insane to me. It seems as if, you know, if there was open source software, let's say Microsoft decides to open source Excel, they say we're using it, it belongs to the community now, here's, you know, every single Excel user gets an Excel token, and you can all do what you want with it. We're out. See ya. Bye. It seems insane that if you know a group of people use Excel to keep track of their drug profits from their drug gang in one city in the world, that every single other user of Microsoft Excel around the world would some suddenly be responsible for that as a joint and several partner, joint and severally liable partner in a partnership. That just makes no sense whatsoever. That, that's not the law in, the, in America. That's never been the law in America. You know, on the other hand, if you have you know, a group of three people who say we're a DAO, and, you know, but they control it, they, they each control a third of it, they take all the activities, they actually control the platform, you know, the law is much more likely to say, guys, come on, you're a general partnership. You've come together for you know, the sharing of profits and losses for this business enterprise. Each state has its different definitions of, of what a partnership is going to be, but you can see that that would be a partnership. So when you're trying to figure out, okay, well, is the DAO liable? You have to figure out, you have to think like, what is the DAO and who actually at the end of the day should be liable for anything? You know, fundamentally, crypto is a very internationalistic community. There are people all over the world that have their, they live in their own countries and they follow their own laws and norms and rules and regulations. And it would seem absolutely crazy to say that some 20 year old in France who once voted to change the background color of his favorite web front end to his favorite decks, that he wanted to change the color scheme from blue to green is all of a sudden you are a voting member of the DAO. And because the DAO violated the law in some country you're not in, We can come after you for joint and several liability damages for everything that the DAO has done. I mean, that seems insane. And if that takes root in the law, which I strongly don't think that it will, but if that were to take root, it would be disastrous for DAOs as a whole and the experimentation in corporate form that they allow. Nobody is suggesting that people who actually do 
illegal things should be allowed to get away with it, right? If you are a company that is committing crimes or that is violating the securities laws or the commodities laws, and you are organized as an ink, then you can be held responsible for that. If you are the same thing, you're just organized as a DAO, then you can still be held responsible for it. But it's important in a DAO to try to figure out, okay, who are the actual people that we're concerned about here and not sweep in everyone or to punish people for participating in the organization. And I think regulators have to step very carefully to make sure that in pursuing the valid goals that they have, they're not accidentally stomping out more interesting forms of corporate experimentation that really could be put to great use. From a member's perspective, liability has been important throughout history. DAO members should carefully consider the liability implications associated with joining any given DAO as a contributor or especially as a governing party. It's important to keep in mind that developers are likely taking measures to mitigate their own liability through decentralization of control. This infers that the developers are distributing their liability elsewhere. We and our student team spent many, many hours investigating the different articles discussing member liability. And what follows are assessments of the six important articles that we found. The article by Stephen Pally, How to Sue a Decentralized Autonomous Organization, highlights the concern for DAOs. If you don't formalize a legal structure for a human-centered entity, courts will impose one on you. As most lawyers will tell you, a general partnership, unless properly formalized or deliberately created structure, is a very bad thing. Among other issues, the members of a general partnership can end up jointly and severably liable on a personal basis for partnership obligations. One potential flaw in their structure is they may not have assets from which to indemnify third parties. And a big concern for a DAO creator or participant lacking assets or a legal form, Pauli expects that a court will see the entity that isn't really an entity as a fiction and can allow a lawsuit to proceed against individual members. Pauli wrote this way back in 2016. In late 2022, CFTC, in their suit against Uki DAO, the court has considered Uki to be a general partnership. It is interesting to see how Pally's prediction came true. And this is back in 2016, so about six years later. I believe it was the first time we've seen a lawsuit brought against the DAO, and we've seen amicus briefs filed in response to the DAO by teams. Pally, I believe, was one of them and has been advocating. But it is interesting to see this come to light so many years later, because if you don't create that structure, the government and the regulator or whoever is bringing suit against you will attempt to impose one on you, which could then lead to your inability to shield personal assets outside of the DAO. What do you think of something like this, Kyle, as a legal engineer? Does it make you bullish on the importance of legal engineering over time to somehow shield liability? Or do you think we'll always need that off-chain legal consideration? We probably do need the off-chain legal consideration, though it, it can be put on-chain, it's just that it, there's a qualitative human readable level always, I believe, that, that will interact with this. LexDAO itself was created actually in part because of an argument uh, within the DAO space a few years ago, whether DAOs should take Pauli's concerns seriously or just decentralize further and assume that courts won't impose a structure. The founders of LexDAO, I, I believe Ross Campbell, who's a well-known legal engineer in this space, he was innovating quite a bit on legal wrappers and legal protections for DAOs, but other DAO engineers either didn't give him support or were actually using a different philosophy. There's a very prevalent philosophy to this day. A true DAO, something that isn't a dino, shouldn't wave the white flag and say that they're part of a, a territory, which choosing a legal wrapper does that to some extent. So, or a DAO chooses LLC in the U.S., then the DAO is acquiescing that it has legal standing in the U.S. So there's a difference of opinion, yeah, even, even now, about whether DAOs should engage at all with traditional legal. As a legal engineer, I believe that DAOs will necessarily engage with legal, and it seems that is unfolding. And so it's better to self-regulate that type of strategy than wait for the regulators to come and, and mm -hmm. make a worse choice. 
But yeah, it was actually quite a bit of friction. And so LexDAO was created in order for us to have the space to develop things like legal wrappers. Thank you for that background. That's great. And let's jump into the next article by Carla Reyes titled, If Rockefeller Were a Coder. And we'll link all these articles in the show notes below so you can read the full article. But Carla's piece here reveals the practical and theoretical deficits of using partnerships as the only common law entity option for businesses based on the blockchain. The article demonstrates that incorporation and limited liability company, that's LLC formation, will also pose both practical and doctrinal difficulties for some businesses. When faced with a similar conundrum in the 19th century, Rockefeller turned to the common law business trust as a substitute business entity. In her article, Carla argues that if Rockefeller were a coder building a blockchain-based business like a DAO today, he would again turn to the business trust as his choice of entity. So what is a business trust? Historically, these trusts offered profit-seeking associations of persons, limited liability, entity shielding, capital lock-in, tradable shares, and legal personhood, just as though the owners had formed a corporation. But unlike a traditional trust, which centers on a gift from a settler to one or more beneficiaries, the business trust is similar to a corporation in its general scheme of organization and business operations and is established to run a business enterprise. So it does sound pretty appealing so far. It definitely isn't something that gets a lot of discussion these days, and maybe we can talk a bit about why that's the case. Because the business trust enjoyed its height of popularity when law made incorporation cumbersome. So it was difficult to incorporate as a company with severe restrictions on the corporate form. This was the law, with many states preserving the institution of the business trust. Today, business trusts are commonly used for the structuring of mutual funds in REITs or real estate investment trusts and in asset securitization. Generally, today, states that continue to recognize the common law business trust view it as an unincorporated association carried on for profit, created at common law by an agreement. Under the agreement creating the trust, property is held and managed by trustees for the benefit and profit of the owners of the trust. So for example, Carla looks at Bitcoin as a potential business trust. She posits that if the Bitcoin blockchain is the asset of the business trust, the nodes with the power to validate the miners are the trustees. Such nodes possess the sole power to vote on how to manage the asset through Bitcoin improvement proposals. The nodes that validate transactions then decide when to adopt a hard fork and are responsible for reaching consensus on the evolution and existence of the present state of the Bitcoin blockchain. As trustees, some miners periodically receive remuneration for their services pursuant to the rules of the protocol. Under this conception, individuals holding Bitcoin act as certificate holders, and Bitcoins act as shares in the business trust. They represent the holder's proportional entitlement to value generated by the Bitcoin blockchain through the services it provides to the public. So, you know, there's some issues with with this analogy here, but I do think it's a great way to visualize how the trust operates in that sense with Bitcoin holders not having any right to manage the primary asset of the trust. Um, Bitcoin holders can only transfer certificates to others interested in buying into the business trust. So Bitcoin is a pretty good example, a pretty good analogy to a business trust in that sense, whereas the value of the Bitcoin, which could be the certificate of ownership of the business trust, depends on the value and the relative success of the Bitcoin blockchain itself, just as something would depend on the value of the business trust itself. As a result, the Bitcoin blockchain could have been formed as a decentralized business trust. One trust that is popular for DAOs these days is a Guernsey trust. Guernsey is an island in the English Channel. It's self-governed, but it's a British crown dependent. So Guernsey has some unique laws, but those laws integrate well with the common law system. One of the benefits of a Guernsey trust is that there aren't as stringent KYC requirements. So members of a Guernsey trust can have more anonymity than in other options. And that is something that is really important for a lot of DAOs. And if a DAO chooses a legal entity, oftentimes it prefers one where there are lax KYC requirements. 
And a reason DAOs choose not to have a legal entity sometimes is because they don't want KYC whatsoever. KYC is not just so they can conduct nefarious activities, right? There's a practical reason behind that as well, just given how widely the tokens distributed. It would be next to impossible. You'd have to completely change the way the system operated in order to conduct KYC on any potential DAO token holder, right? It's not just that DAO members want to shield their identity. It's the practical reality of navigating something like that would make it so onerous that it would have a chilling effect on DAO progress and membership. Yeah. And and there's an argument KYC requires centralization and there's privacy concerns. So GDPR comes into play and that's more onus. If it's a DAO that's quite a bit of protocol, um, why is KYC required? That also calls into question the basic reasons to have KYC in the first place. Uh, so LexDAO, we are very on side with the right to be anonymous. The next article Aaron Wright's article, The Rise of Decentralized Autonomous Organizations, Opportunities and Challenges, published in 2021. In the article, Wright explains, DAOs are not formally recognized and do not fit neatly into existing forms of business associations. This makes it difficult for DAOs to interact with with traditional business entities and often means imposing personal risk on members. Asset partitioning, limited liability, and other conveniences of separate legal personhood are all reasons for forming a business entity. And based on the frequency with which single shareholder corporations and single member limited liability companies occur, they appear to be relatively strong reasons. For this reason, entrepreneurs and organizations wishing to adopt a system of blockchain-based governance, even highly decentralized forms of blockchain-based governance, will want a way to secure a separate legal existence from their enterprise. Here's Aaron Wright, CEO and co-founder of Tribute Labs on how he built legally compliant DAOs. The more we played around with DAOs, the more interesting it became. And we decided at some point to run an experiment where we looked back to the original DAO experiment in Ethereum, the DAO, and said, hey, if we wanted to do this in a way that complied with US law, what would that look like? And put together a project called Allow that attempted to do that. And so drawing on some conversations that really started at some events at MIT in, I think, 20. 15, right before Ethereum launched, we said, how about we create a structure that's anchored in the US in a Delaware limited liability company and mirror out in the language of the legal agreements enough clauses and other conditions where we would defer to the underlying smart contract system for governance and use these smart contract based systems to, to manage the contribution of assets, the just you know division of profits or losses, and to also administer the governance, like how people are going to make decisions together. And so we worked with a bunch of different projects in the space, including a group of developers that call themselves Cartel and some of the other folks that were building out some early DAO tooling and put together the underlying smart contracts. We worked on kind of a rough legal structure for this and launched it. And so that first DAO was called the Lao. And the idea with the Lao was if it worked, if these systems and groups were successful in their objective, which was to support projects that we would create other DAOs and build out a whole network of DAOs. And that's what we've been doing over the past two years. We've now built out a network of, I think it's 18 DAOs that are supporting projects. They're collecting NFTs together. They're, some of them are trying to build things together. And we're just trying to explore how online groups with a shared bank account can build useful and interesting or make good decisions. The next article we reviewed was by Christopher Brummer and Rodrigo Sierra called Legal Rappers and DAOs. In this article, Brummer and Sierra state that the spectrum of potential DAO rappers is considerable and broader than most founders might initially assume. It spans legal entities and forms commonly associated with business associations to both incorporated and unincorporated nonprofits. Yet even in this variety, the authors anticipate that most founders will have to engage in a similar process of thinking when it comes to choosing legal wrappers. Early on, at a most basic level, some evaluation of the risks of not incorporating must be performed. As the paper documents, founders will have to consider whether or not the activities of their DAO or proposed DAO create potential scenarios for disputes or litigation. And for larger, more ambitious projects, Additional considerations have to be made considering any tax liabilities, any regulatory concerns, and any other related risks. 
this whole point of the podcast was to discuss member liability. And I think that takeaway from their paper does a great job of summarizing some of the concerns there, particularly from a tax perspective. If individuals aren't paying respective taxes on behalf of the DAO or aren't paying their respective taxes based on any income that could be attributed to the DAO, which may not have a legal wrapper. We are not tax lawyers and none of this is legal advice, but I think the idea of speaking to a lawyer as early as possible who's knowledgeable about the space is something we really want to emphasize. As DAOs extend into service DAO environment, employment law becomes more and more of an issue. And that one has actually so far been relatively overlooked in our space, uh, but that's starting to change quickly, especially because service DAOs are becoming very popular. That's a great one. And maybe that's something we'll touch on on a future uh, series episode to talk about how DAO members and operators should think about employment contracts and whether they're necessary or not and repercussions given how employment law has evolved over time. And, And it relates to tax as well. Often. So when it comes to employment law, then Kyle, with, with regard to DAOs, what are some scenarios that come to mind for you of like where employment considerations should be discussed either with a lawyer or just at length among the group before decisions are made? One is that getting back to that KYC is if you have to collect forms like W-9 from, from the members. Essentially, a W-9 is just a KYC form that people would fill out um, when working on behalf, particularly in like independent contractor agreements. So that way the, the U.S. government has something on file with respect to how you were paid or that you were paid a certain amount of income from a U.S.-based entity. Yeah. So one of the questions is, is this contributor considered a contractor or are they considered an employee of the DAO? If DAOs are decentralized, we'd expect as few employees as possible, but in certain instances it might not be avoidable. Also, we should be honest about whether or not this individual is acting as a contractor or we'd rather just want them to be acting as a contractor. And that's one of the main pressures for having special purpose vehicles. If the DAO is operating in multiple jurisdictions at once, which is very common for DAOs because they're internet native organizations. So they are global from ground zero. And there are organizations, when I can think up off the top of my head, two of them actually, work DAO as well as Opolis. They're becoming third-party providers that can handle some of these headaches. Yeah, it's it's important to keep that in mind. And I think we will have a future episode just on the employment side of DAOs and all the considerations there because there are pretty critical differences between the obligations of a business or of an entity for employees versus independent contractors. And there are tests across the world to determine whether someone fits into one bucket or the other, particularly with how much work they're doing. If all their work is directed by and for one entity, they look a lot more like an employee than an independent contractor. And often jurisdictions take a substance over form approach. Even if you sign an independent contractor agreement, they could still deem you to be an employee, which could then have ramifications on the DAO itself. Peter's paper, Exploring DAO Members' Individual Liability, and it was published uh, last year. The paper explores individual liability for DAO members. The paper provides policy arguments in disfavor of granting DAOs limited liability. It argues that risk, efficiency, and fairness are all concerns with DAO limited liability. It concludes that DAOs are promising organizational innovations as long as they are not constructs for risk-taking without liability. And in one way, it's, it's a bit of a different of a opinion. So it's not group think. It's saying that it's, it doesn't want DAOs to have limited liability. I guess I'm reading that in as in including when DAOs have legal wrappers, which perhaps it's not actually including that. Maybe the better way to read it is if a DAO has no legal entity, then it, it also shouldn't have limited liability, which, yeah, I personally agree with that. Right. It's like not a blanket saying, hey, just because you set up a DAO, you can do whatever you want now. They're not saying you can't have a DAO with legal wrapper. They're saying if you if you don't have a legal wrapper, then don't assume limit liability, which is definitely what LexDAO's position is. The last paper we looked at was called Deconstructing the DAO, the Need for Legal Recognition and the Application of Securities Laws to Decentralized Organizations as part of Cardozo Law Review by Leila Medhalik. This is from May 2018, and the 
paper argues that because DAOs do not have a recognized legal status, the limited liability protection afforded to many other organizations is not available, leaving individuals subject to personal liability because of their investments. And that's what we've talked about ad nauseum in this episode, that DAOs themselves don't have recognized legal status. And sure, you can go through Vermont and Wyoming and certain jurisdictions to get that legal status so long as you register with the government. But setting up a DAO itself does not provide that liability protection. Moreover, the paper states that if courts construe the DAOs as general partnerships, token holders will also owe each other fiduciary duties as partners that they may not have considered upon investment. The risk of personal legal liability may dissuade potential members from investing in, participating in, or creating DAOs. And I think that's a really important point for builders to consider, where not only legal is important from a liability perspective, but also from a marketing and sales perspective in that if you don't have the necessary protections, just like if some boards in the corporate world don't offer certain benefits to board members, they may be less likely to attract new members due to that fiduciary duty that is created. The paper goes on to state that the combination of reduced transaction costs in addition to the benefits of blockchains and smart contracts could enable DAOs to coordinate activities across the globe. These benefits, however, mean little without legal recognition. In the US, the paper states that courts will likely view DAOs as a general partnership and therefore they will be subject to personal liability in the event of insolvency or tort liability. And I think this paper is just a really good reminder of things we've spoken about. There are legal wrappers available that don't necessarily need to register with the government. That's why UNAs are very popular legal wrappers, because there isn't a requirement in certain states to register. But yeah, for the most part, registration is, is a requirement. It's well worth it what people get on the other side. And looking at the software industry, thinking about developers in the software industry in the 80s and 90s and such. One of the issues with open source software, free software for consumer grade, was that that the software was offered with no warranty. So oftentimes consumers would decide on the software that costs money and is restricted because of the fact that they could go to the company that made the software if there were any problems. That's a great point. At the end of the day, you typically need to have an other side, right? There needs to be someone to go after for recourse if things go wrong and there's harm done. And just because a DAO is spun up, just like previously, just because a group of individuals meet together at the park every Sunday, doesn't mean that that group of individuals won't be subject to the law. If you take what happens on-chain versus off-chain, it's the same fundamental principle. Well, the execution is different, just like we saw with mango markets with a theft or manipulation of the system, even if your, your argument is that code is law, you can make the same argument in the physical world that, hey, the bank vault was unlocked or I convinced them to let me in just because you didn't bring a gun in. It doesn't mean you didn't rob them. You still committed theft. So let's talk now about American uh, North American case law. A few prominent examples with the one that everyone discusses and probably the most important case to date when it comes to DAOs is the CFTC versus UKIDAO in, I believe, the Northern District of California. So on September 22nd, 2022, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, that is the CFTC, filed a federal civil enforcement action in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California, charging a decentralized autonomous organization, the UKIDAO, with violating multiple laws under the Commodity Exchange Act and Bank Secrecy Act, such as illegally operating an unregistered futures commission merchant and failing to adopt a consumer identification program. The CFTC also filed and settled charges against a related entity, B0X LLC, and its founders requiring those founders to pay a $250,000 monetary penalty and to cease and desist from further violations. Here's Rebecca Redding, general counsel of the Ave companies with some background on UkiDAO. Just to give a two second background, UkiDAO and the Uki protocol were previously the BZX protocol or the BZX DAO. And the BZX protocol allows basically for retail participants to trade with 
leverage or margin. In the US, to offer leverage or margin trading to US retail participants, you have to be registered with the CFTC. Prior to the DAO, there were two founders of BZX, the BZX protocol, who the SEC alleges in an enforcement order were running the protocol as a business. And so they basically ran an unregistered business to allow U.S. retail participants to engage with margin trading. So that's what the enforcement order came down on. There are unfortunate circumstances alleged relating to BZX protocol or Uki protocol and Uki DAO, where the founders made a public announcement saying, we're now going to transition everything to a DAO to basically regulatory arbitrage out any of any liability for anybody. For better or worse, worse, the founders remained very involved in the DAO and the allegations now, separate from the enforcement order against the founders, is to say that the DAO took over running the business. And so the DAO itself was offering a protocol that let U.S. retail participants illegally engage in margin trading in the United States. So the, the real allegation is that the DAO was running a business. Um, the CFTC's theory against the Uki DAO token holders is that only the people who voted were running the business through the DAO. And so we've seen a real chilling effect on DAO voting even since the complaint and this theory. And so it really shuts down this idea of decentralized governance if you are going to hold people who vote liable for running a business. Again, the facts aren't perfect. As far as I understand, it wasn't a DAO with hundreds of thousands of token holders and tons of participants. But even subsequent to the Uki DAO case, there were two snapshots relating to on the Uki DAO. And at least as far as the first one goes, no one voted. They did a second snapshot, and I think there was some very small voting. But it's clear that it's chilled it. And I've heard just behind the scenes from various token holders, both larger institutional participants and individuals don't want to vote in governance anymore until this gets clarified. So here you have this DeFi platform that facilitated margin trading and leveraged retail commodity transactions. And those transactions are required by US law to occur on a designated contract market. And B0X was not a designated contract market. Therefore, by soliciting and entering into retail commodity transactions with customers and accepting money or property to margin these transactions, the CFT, CFT claimed that B0X illegally operated as an unregistered future commission merchant. The claim also accuses B0X of lacking a consumer identification program, which was required under the Bank Secrecy Act. Per the CFTC's complaint, when B0X transferred control of the protocol to UkiDAO. UkiDAO continued to operate the protocol in an identical and thus unlawful manner. Upon the transfer of control, the complainant alleges that B0X's founders told community members in a call that they considered the protocol enforcement proof. Obviously, the CFTC disagreed and considers the UkiDAO to be an unincorporated association. As DAOs lack formal management structure, the CFTC claims that DAO token holders who voted on decisions were active members and are liable for violations by the DAO. So a few things that we've gleaned from the Uki DAO case. The first is that it's clear a DAO can be sued in U.S. federal court, meaning DAO token holders must be aware of potential liability accompanying their involvement. The UkiDAO members were included in the lawsuit as members of an unincorporated association, which theoretically means that liability associated with the UkiDAO could be attached to any individual who holds tokens. Second, the language in the complaint suggests that if a smart contract protocol runs a program deemed to violate certain regulations, liability for DAO members may continuously be generated because the DAO permits and continues to permit user activity. Third, while many disagree with the CFTC's approach, including members of their own team, we still haven't seen a withdrawal of that approach. CFTC Commissioner Summer K. Merzinger published a dissent against the CFTC's suit, taking issue with the commission's approach to determine liability for DAO token holders based on their governance voting. This case also offers an important lesson, an important discussion around what valid service is, with many of the amicus briefs filed on behalf of DAOers discussing that the idea of filing service via a chatbot is insufficient. 
Here's Rebecca Rettig to discuss a bit more on that. The other challenging thing in the Uki Dao case, which everyone's been super focused on, is the way that the CFTC tried to serve the Dow. And it goes to this dispersion of individuals and things like that. But the CFTC put in a motion for alternative service. Normally, when you bring a litigation against someone, you have to serve them because under the due process clause, they deserve notice of a case against them so they can defend against that. In the U.S., that usually requires personal service to an individual or it requires service to a registered agent for a business. So you get a physical copy of the complaint, things like that. Here, they asked for the ability to serve in an alternative manner because in theory, it's not a business. And also this is a dispersed group of individuals. And so they served the complaint through the UkiDAO chat box, like a, almost like a help chat, and also by posting it on the governance forum. And there was a lot of concern over the fact that How do you even know that anyone who voted is manning the chat box? How do you know that anyone who voted is necessarily on the governance forum? And is that really the proper way to give to to afford due process to anyone who participated in the DAO? And so the Lexpunk Army and the DeFi Education Fund filed amicus briefs to oppose the motion for alternative service and say, no, you have to go prove that you really afforded due process under your theory of the case to give the people who voted actual notice of this case and so they can defend themselves if if they want to. The only decision we've seen in Canada relating to the legal status of a DAO is a 2018 administrative decision of the Quebec Financial Markets Administrative Tribunal in a case involving Crayunite which had a website that solicited the public to invest in Crayonite's business by purchasing cryptocurrency tokens. On the website, they represented that they were a DAO, that the DAO does not need to be incorporated or regulated, and that Crayonite as a DAO was not governed under Canadian legislation. None of that turned out to be true. From the decision, it appears that Crayonite was not selling governance tokens, but was merely attempting to raise money for Crayonite's business. They had no known address in Quebec and were not registered as a corporation. They had also not registered with the Autorité des Marchés Financiers or filed a prospectus or have been granted an exemption for the distribution of securities. Ultimately, the tribunal held that the individuals were distributing an investment contract without a prospectus and that they were not registered to sell securities. While this administrative decision is informative, it is not binding authority on Canadian superior and appellate courts and leaves the question as to the legal status of a DAO in Canada unresolved. In the UK, the government has articulated its ambition to position the United Kingdom as a leading global hub for crypto asset technology and investment. As of now, the UK doesn't have a regulatory regime that recognizes DAOs as a type of legal entity. So from a legal standpoint, a DAO in the UK cannot own property and its members can face unlimited liability. But the UK Law Commission is currently undertaking a study on how DAOs should be recognized and regulated in the future. DAOs are said to offer multiple benefits to market participants, yet their legal and regulatory status is unclear, said Law Commissioner Sarah Green. Our work will aim to build consensus on the best ways to describe the elements of DAOs, and to highlight ways in which the law of England and Wales might foster their development. This probe will look into issues like the relationship between DAOs and corporations, the status of investors and token holders, the legal liability of open source code developers, and the ways in which DAOs tackle money laundering, file annual reports, and pay taxes. In Germany, they also have not adopted specific legislation for DAOs, Uh, As of now, a DAO does not have the necessary elements to register as a limited liability company or stock corporation under German laws. Therefore, it appears that a German court is likely to classify DAO as an unincorporated association or a civil law partnership. So this leaves members open to personal liability. Switzerland, similar to other European nations, doesn't have DAO-specific legislation, but domestic legislation does allow for Decentralized Autonomous Associations. These DAAs, DAOs, are non-profit DAOs. Estonia allows DAOs to register as a private limited company or a non-profit association. So it's, it's, it's really a patchwork approach, and I, I'd be interested to see how DAOs register in Estonia, if, like what the KYC requirements are there to whether or not it would be 
a valid form and whether that would be accepted or not in jurisdictions across the world is an interesting question. So let's briefly touch on Central and South American. There, there wasn't any case law that we could find relating to DAOs there, uh, but we've seen Panama law formally recognizes DAOs as legal entities and sets a framework for the country to issue tokenized securities and commodities via security token offerings. Several notable DAOs, such as SushiSwap, have chosen to set up a DAO in Panama as a Panama Private Interest Foundation, which is not owned by any individuals or entities. The assets of the Private Interest Foundation in Panama take on a separate legal identity from the personal assets of the founder, protector, council members, or any beneficiaries, protecting the assets of all parties to the foundation. And uh, just as a, an aside real quick, Lextile, we're right now working with a blockchain that is in discussions with Liechtenstein about novel legal entities that can support DAOs. So that's exciting announcements to come. Stay tuned. So for DAOs seeking to register in Hong Kong can set up a company limited by guarantee. This type of legal entity is especially useful for nonprofits because profits can't be distributed to members. But the advantage of such an entity is that liability of members is limited to a predetermined amount that they guarantee. I'm going to add something real quick about Japan. In Japan, the Japanese digital ministry is currently creating a DAO for Web3 exploration. In Australia, they do not have a bespoke regulatory regime for DAOs, but a regulatory committee just released a comprehensive model law report discussing how DAOs should be allowed to operate. A key feature of the committee's report is that DAO members will only be liable for their on-chain contribution. Additionally, members will not incur liability for obligations of the DAO or actions of other members. Thank you, everyone, for joining us in this episode. We'd like to, again, thank the sponsors, the DAO Research Collective, TallyDAO, and Lobby3 for making this episode possible. Thank Kyle, Kyler, Evan, Soraya for putting together the research on the back end and making this possible as well and everyone for listening. Kyle, that was a lot of fun. This was the first edition of the DAO Research Monthly. Stay tuned and send Kyle, myself, or Kyler a DM on what you'd like to see, uh, any particular DAO-specific topics we should talk about from a legal perspective. Uh, we are all ears. Let us know what you thought of this episode as well. Thanks for joining us, everyone.